everyone. Welcome back to the Philosophy of Data Science series. This interview is part of our first session of the series where we're focusing on scientific reasoning for practical data science. In other words, you know, don't get scared off by the term philosophy. The topics we're discussing are actually super practical to real life. So, um, and the purpose of the series is to lay out some of the key ideas that'll make it a lot easier to navigate through the data science problems and help you become a great or even greater data scientist. And now the reason that most of us tuned in today We've got Andrew Gelman here, and he's going to tell us what he knows. So um, Andrew Gelman requires very little introduction for most of the statistical community, but perhaps just for the people who are starting out on their statistical or data science journeys. Andrew, could, to start off, could you just uh, introduce yourself and your work and your research interests? Um, I teach statistics and political science at Columbia University in New York. And I've worked on a bunch of applied projects, um, including public opinion and elections, pharmacology and toxicology, sports analytics, um, business analytics, um, sociology, economics, various other things. Um, and I've um, written books on Bayesian methods and regression modeling. And for a quick clarification, not just written books, but I would say probably written the book on uh, Bayesian analysis? Well, it was the first applied Bayesian book. So there had been some theoretical books before then. And when we wrote the book, I was kind of afraid that everybody would put it down, that they would say, this is all obvious stuff. And why are they making such a big deal about it? But actually, people are happy about our book because then they felt they didn't have to write it themselves. They could just give it to students and then they could move on to their own stuff. So I, I realized that that's often the case. If you do something that a lot of other people are doing, uh, they'll sometimes they'll actually like it uh, because then you get them off the hook and they don't have to write it up. Yeah, that's cool. And um... One of the most important takeaways from this, uh, the blog. Should we, can you quickly talk about the blog? I had a postdoc I was working with in 2004, Samantha Cook, and she had a lot of ideas. And I thought that instead of us just talking with each other about them and emailing them back and forth, we could post them on the blog. So we created a blog and a wiki page so that we could communicate our research ideas to each other in an open way so that other people could get involved too. The wiki got hacked, so we abandoned the wiki, but we kept the blog. Um, she still had a lot of great ideas, but I don't think she always felt so comfortable writing stuff up in public that way. So it ended up being more of a place where I and some colleagues could post on things that we we're interested in. Well, that's really cool. And uh, for those who are interested in more, uh, just uh, the the blog, as it's been called, is it is the blog uh, to check out. And we'll have a link uh, to that to uh, the Andrew Gelman blog in uh, the description of the YouTube video. So uh, definitely check that out. And um, but today we're going to be talking about the philosophy of science. And you know you've had quite a few thoughts on where Bayesian analysis. And what I really liked about I think a lot of statisticians. Um, actually had their first introduction to the philosophy of science and realizing, oh, this is a, this is a thing, um, reading your work and uh, so some of the work that you did. Um, well, I 
I think starting probably around 2010, some of those publications. And um, that uh, you wrote quite a bit, what I think was really nice was you wrote a bit about how the philosophy of science applies to how you personally go about your, uh, you know, your data modeling process and your data revision process, which I think is uh, really cool. So you've written about where Bayesian analysis falls in, in terms of like, uh, whether it's inductive versus more of a hypothesis and deductive process. And you've also talked a bit about um, where, uh, with regards to like scientific revolutions, where Bayesian modeling fits with regard to sort of the Popper versus Kuhn um, uh, sort of deductive falsification versus what is, you know, normal science versus, um, versus a, more of a scientific revolution. But before we talk about those, because um, we'll get to those in a second, um, I think a really key question that people would like to hear from you is just, you know, why should an applied data scientist care about the philosophy of science? Um, you know, why should we care about whether we're using induction versus deduction as long as we arrive at the right answer? Um, you know, so what can data science learn from philosophy? Well, one thing I want to get back to is that there is no single way of doing science that, uh, or doing statistics. So it's a little bit like writing or art, like painting. There's just many ways of doing it. And so you have to, you have to be aware of your own style and what, what you're comfortable doing. And I can give some examples of that. But first, let me answer your question about why philosophy. Um, Christian Hennig and I wrote about this in our paper. There are two reasons why it's good to think about philosophy. The first is that good philosophy can help you do better work. The second is that bad philosophy can get in the way of good work. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And uh, it, uh, just uh, if you want to go into that a little bit more, because, uh, you know, the, this is the main, the main topic. So, um, for example, what are the pitfalls of uh, an applied data science if they're using bad philosophy, if they're using, I guess, um, a broken philo philosophical compass, if you will? So an example of what I would consider a bad philosophy is an um, inductive Bayesian approach, uh, which, or, I don't know, well, a kind of traditional subjectivist Bayesian approach, which says that your model is your subjective model and so cannot be questioned. Um, and when this is a less common attitude than used to be, but I remember going to a Bayesian conference back in 1991, shortly after I got my PhD. And I saw all these people speaking um, and they would have these models they'd fit to their data. And I'd ask if they'd check their model and they'd say, no, because it's subjective. So we, we can't check it, which seemed kind of funny, right? Like if it's something is subjective, it seems like it's more important that you check it. But it was, there's a, a, a kind of funny attitude, like, well, this is impossible. So because, like, it's true that there are always aspects of your model that can't be checked with the data, but that doesn't mean there are also aspects that can be checked. So the fact that, a, that there are ways that a model can't be falsified is not a good reason not to check the model in the first place. So I felt that, that this there was a, a philosophy um, a subjectivist, personalistic philosophy, which got in the way. Like people 
things that are very natural, like making scatter plots and comparing your data to simulated replications of the, from, the, from the model, people just weren't doing, I think in, in part because their, like, their philosophy was getting in their way. Um, and then you, you, there are certainly um, non-Bayesian philosophies that, that cause problems too. Like when, when people talk about coverage of, of confidence intervals, um, of course, that doesn't tell you anything in itself about the coverage of an individual interval. So if people realize that, that's okay, but you get some people with a hardcore, hardcore philosophy where they say you can never say anything about the individual interval, or people with a hardcore philosophy saying you can't include prior information in your model. Now, I'll say, like, I don't think it, these philosophies have holes in them. So I'm giving you a kind of external criticism of these philosophies, where I say people who follow these philosophies that I don't like end up doing bad things. They, they end up they end up making uh, false conclusions or not learning what they could from their data. Um, that's, you could say those are external criticisms. You can also make internal criticisms, criticisms of these philosophies and talk about their, um, you can see where they're internally contradictory. And also, I mean, related to this, there are things which aren't quite philosophies, but sometimes I call them statistical ideologies and they're like kind of attitudes. So for example, um, sometimes people are, are trained to think that if they have a randomized controlled experiment and they have statistical significance, then that gives them discoveries. Now there's no theorem that says this if you kind of look carefully at the theoretical statements, but it's, it's a sort of ideology. It's associated with a kind of rigor or pseudo rigor. Um, so again, having this, like, I think people who use null hypothesis significance testing and who overvalue results from noisy experiments, they wouldn't necessarily call themselves philosophical at all. I don't know that they would identify this as a philosophy, they would identify it as a method. Um, but an unquestioning attitude can cause problems. So at the very least, introspecting and understanding what are the assumptions that you're going by and what is your philosophy, what are your larger goals, what do your statements represent, how, what, is, what are the connections between your statements and the external world, like those are, those are worth interrogating um, to avoid making kind of mistakes. I'd like to go back for a second um, to the uh, the first issue that you described, which was you know this Bayesian idea, where by virtue of a Bayesian model being subjective, it was not uh, sort of checkable, and by virtue of it not being checkable, we won't bother to check. And then I guess it then sort of snowballs into well, if you don't bother to check, then you can't try to falsify. Like you won't bother to try and falsify a model. Is that sort of the sort of snowballing of and then you don't bother to check, you know, if, if, you're, if your model actually looks at the data and you don't see where errors might arise and shortcomings might arise in your model. Is that sort of the chain reaction of bad philosophy that you think about? 
that's one of them. I, and falsification is, is tricky because I, I always say my models aren't only falsifiable, they're actually false. So the, the goal of falsification is can't be to discover that your model is false because you already know it, right? So somehow the goal of falsification has to be ultimately to find problems in your model that can allow you to get greater scientific understanding. So it's a search for anomalies. So they, the stronger the stronger our model is, the more we can find these anomalies. And that's an attitude I learned from reading uh, the Ed James's book. And by James's book, you mean uh, E.T. James, the uh, uh, physicist slash statistician? Yes, the yes. physicist. Yeah, I use an unusual guy um, from a academic physics or statistics point of view um, in, in many ways. But that helps someone that's unusual. You can read something that he's written and learn something you wouldn't have otherwise learned. On this issue, though, of, um, of this idea that uh, subjectivity and Bayesianism then leads to non-checking, etc., do you think that view is as commonly held as when you originally wrote some of those uh, papers, I think it was back in 2010, 11, 12, um, or has it changed quite a bit since then? Because it seems like uh, a Bayesian who doesn't actually check and compare their models or use it to run simulations. Um, well, I think my big contributions were mostly there from our Bayesian data analysis book, because we generalized from Bayesian inference to Bayesian data analysis. So data analysis we defined as model building inference and model checking so we put it right right in there so that was probably the biggest effect was with our book also the 2000 our 2006 paper gave it something of a theoretical framework so the posterior predictive checking so that probably helped also yeah and i i guess uh one thing is that uh your writing can see be seen as something of a a little bit of a victim of its success because by virtue of getting people to change their practices and improve their practices when you read some of these older papers you think it's like yeah yeah i, I think i can sort of see some people doing that sometimes but I, th I don't think people will do that quite as much anymore so i guess to that extent the papers uh that work has been successful because it has changed the way that people approach their practical statistical approaches I, I hope so. When when we first did the, and the, it came to me for two reasons. One is just working, doing applied work. You don't want to get the wrong answer. So we spend a lot of time checking our models. When we were modeling votes, uh, there, there we moved to a kind of non-parametric model of, we were modeling um, votes in congressional elections. If you have 435 elections to the U.S. House of Representatives, then you might want to look at the distribution of these votes. And you can look at them and they don't look like a normal distribution. They're kind of bimodal. Uh, then there are uncontested elections you have to deal with. But even the contested ones, we tried to fit a bimodal model, but it wasn't so perfect. So we fit a third mode. And we, so we spent a lot, it was clear, like the, the model mattered because then what we were doing was non-parametric because we're modeling that the vote shares were modeled as being drawn from this distribution um, but then the actual latent votes were considered as they say they were considered because they were considered to be drawn from that they didn't follow a particular distribution 
and we did inference for them using a hierarchical model, which was kind of cool because it was a model with one, one observation per group, actually, and that's another story. But when you're doing a hierarchical model, the, the distribution that you're assuming for the latent variables, in this case, the latent um, partisan strengths of the, in the different districts, the distribution you assume for those latent variables affects how much partial pooling you're doing and where you're doing the pooling. So if I have an election in a certain district and the Democrats get 85% of the vote, um, but it's a noisy election, noisy data, my estimate for the underlying strength of the party will be pooled. But I shouldn't pull it all the way to 50%. I should pull it toward the mode for the Democrats. Or with a mixture model, it's a, a mixture of things. So we, my colleague and I were very aware that the, this kind of theoretical construct of this distribution was important in that it affected our inference for individual districts. You, you just get the wrong answer if you used a bad model. So from an applied perspective, like not checking the model wasn't an alternative. Was wasn't not checking the model. I mean that was yeah, it wasn't something we were considering. Um, so that was part of it. Then the the other part was I had been doing for my PhD thesis work on tomography, like brain brain imaging, and there there was a statistical model I was working with, and it clearly didn't fit the data. Um, I could just tell with a chi squared test, and but in this case, the when you when we did this chi-squared test, uh, you, you, there's a certain number of data points, and you can compute the error compared to the best fit, and then you need to subtract a certain number of parameters to estimate the degrees of freedom of your chi-squared test. But it wasn't a linear model, so there was no fixed number of parameters. The, the, model, had, it, it, the model had positivity constraints, so although it, it potentially had many, many thousands of parameters, most of the parameters weren't active in the sense that they were being estimated on the boundary. There had been some literature on adjusting chi-squared tests when the estimates were on the boundary. There's a famous paper by Chernoff in 1954, but you couldn't really apply it in this case. There was too much uncertainty. So I used a Bayesian approach to correct the degrees of, to estimate the degrees of freedom and get a distribution for the chi-squared test. So that was the first time I did a posterior predictive check or a posterior predictive p-value. And I was really excited because this was kind of an unsolved statistics problem and we could solve it in some way. Of course, it depends on your prior, but it gives you a reasonable solution. And so I envisioned this as being popular. And also when I did, around the time I did this, I was getting very frustrated with the Bayesians. And so I envision this as becoming popular with the, the non-Bayesians, with that there's a whole literature on model checking and, and testing. And the some of the Bayesians were getting annoyed at me for suggesting that I would compute a p-value or, or do a hypothesis test. Um, but the non-Bayesians didn't like it at all because it was Bayesian. So they just kind of ignored it completely. So I realized I had to work with the Bayesians and I had to present it as a Bayesian approach, even though not every Bayesian loves it, but you kind of have to work with the community that you have despite your frustrations with them sometimes. That is a really good story and uh, um, it's pretty cool. Um, now on to uh, the, so we've talked about sort of the 
practical side of um, what why sort of getting your uh, philosophical compass aligned can be very good for practicing or applied statisticians and data scientists. I'm a bit curious, you know, as someone who also has done so much for uh, methodological uh, development, um, say, for example, that there's um, the determined non-applied statistician or non-applied data scientist where they just say, you know, I'm just going to develop methods, period. Um, you know, if someone is like, I know my deduction, I know my math, um, I'm set. Uh, what 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 would sort of the value of, you know, taking the philosophy of science be to that? Um, and I guess part of, uh, I recall one of your lectures was called the theory of statistics is the theory of applied statistics. But yeah, I'm just curious if you have the dedicated non-applied statistician, what, what would be the value of the philosophy of science for them? Oh, I don't think there are any non-applied statisticians. I don't think that exists. I mean, ultimately, it's for solving applied problems. And if I wanted to answer, I could say, sure, there are, there are like theoretical questions that arise. And um, but uh, I don't know. I don't. I think everyone wants to be applied and wants to be useful. I, I don't think I've ever met someone who would claim to be purely theoretical. But but let me also bring up like another thing because remember I said that. There are two benefits to philosophy. One is you have, if, you're, if you're aware of philosophy, it can help you recognize the assumptions that you're working under and allow you to surmount them. So not knowing philosophy or being ignorant of philosophy, I think, can lead people to make mistakes. But there is also a positive angle that I said that, that knowing philosophy can help you do better work. And one way I, I think about that, I'm, I would consider myself a, a follower of Lactos, not, not the whole Stalinism thing maybe, but the, philosophically. And he was very, um, very aware of the idea that models are provisional and functional. And you build a model and you try to falsify it, and then the falsifications allow you to improve the model. And then he also wrote about how the, the process of model improvement can be what he called degenerate. Like there, there can be a point where you go beyond improving the model and to just trying to save the model. Um, but before you get there, you, you can learn a lot from this back and forth. Now, I think being understanding this philosophy can make you a better researcher, a better scientist and statistician. So if I say I'm making a model and one of the reasons I'm making a model is because it's encoding assumptions and I want to do better, that has a bunch of actionable implications. One thing is that I shouldn't be afraid of finding problems with my model, that that's a positive thing. Another is that if I want to do exploratory data analysis and do graphical work, then modeling can help because the purpose of exploratory data analysis is to find unexpected patterns, right? So unexpected is relative to expected. But the more sophisticated your expectations, the more you learn from a rejection of your model. So even if your only goal was to do exploration, you might want to bone up on all these um, sophisticated modeling ideas in order that your exploration become more effective. So these are a bunch of ways in which I, I think that having a 
kind of modern or sensible philosophy. I guess it's not that modern. Lakatos's philosophy is is 50 years old now, but but have what I consider that modern philosophy. Um, I think can allow can enable you to do better work to actually solve problems better. Yeah, I know you've uh, you've mentioned two things. Um... And the, the second, which I'm going to get back to, is, you know, the issue of exploratory data analysis. But first, I also want to hit on uh, what you talked about, about, you know, identifying the uh, faults and the challenges, having a more sophisticated expectation uh, via your models. Because one of the things that I found that was most useful in my own work, which involves trying to uh, personalize models, uh, starting with very little data, and then as the data expands over time, to continually adapt and personalize those models. And it seemed to me that uh, the work that you described um, was one of you know my main stepping stones for trying to figure out what are the different tools that I might use and wish to use to try and uh, understand you know when a model needs to be updated or thrown out entirely. Um, and uh, the, just to give the specific context, this was in personalizing models to uh, patient-specific time series, and that simply by there are a number of things you can do um, to be checking that the model is still sufficient to. Uh, to be describing the patient's physiology. And then you can also check if another more complex or even a less complex model is sufficient. So it, it does seem like even a very applied person like myself finds a lot of value in uh, going through these different steps and checking um, what, uh, and basically identifying what, what is wrong with the model. And so it seems to me that what, what you've described was very useful to people, for example, there's a lot of buzz about machine learning and AI and things. And a lot of the challenges in those are making sure that your models are always up to date and they're rigorous and relevant. Um, so it seems to me that that is what you've described as a very useful piece of the toolkit to deal with a lot of these modern technologies. Yeah, well, you're never really there. Um, but I think there, there are kind of two things going on. One is you're, you're, there's always a trade-off uh, you, your model is never fully descriptive of your data and it never, it's not just about describing the data, it's never fully descriptive of the data and it never fully plugs into the real world that you care about. And so we always want to improve on these things. Uh, I'll talk about the real world connection now because I think everybody understands like our models don't fit the data. We could always do better if we had more time and more computing power. Uh, used to be back in the day, people would say you can't do better because you, you, can't, you don't have any more parameter fitting budget. But now we understand with regularization, you can always do more. One of the good things about machine learning is that makes people comfortable with regularization, willing to throw lots of free parameters at a problem in, in order to do better. So yeah, we can always do better um, fitting the data. But what about plugging in the data to the real world. So I've already ragged on controlled experiments, so I'll do it again. You do a perfectly designed experiment and your medical experiment, whatever, you learn something, you make inferences. So what? That just tells you about people who are the people who are like the people in the study. So if your study is not a representative sample of the population, then your average treatment effect is meaningless and or not meaningless, but it might not be what you want. So to the extent that your sample doesn't represent the population, you need to allow for treatment interactions and you need to model that. So that's a direction of, it, it's not about modeling the data, getting a better fit to the data. It's about modeling 
to connect to what you ultimately really care about. So there's always going to be a need for that. But I actually want to talk about something slightly different, which is even if, imagine a hypothetical world, which sometimes happens, you have a model that fits the data just fine, and it also plugs into the real world just fine. It's the model you want to fit. It's the model you want it to fit. You fit it. There's no computational problems. You're done. You've solved your problem. Even then, I think you should fit more models. Um, at the very least, you want a model that's a little bit simpler, that gives you a sense of why you needed the complexity that you have in the model. And then you'd like to have a model that's a bit more complex so you can see that you didn't need that. Um, so that's part of it. Then another part of it is trying to understand what the model does. So I did, here is the raw data, blah, blah, blah. I did all these adjustments. Now here's my final inference. I'd like to see the trail of breadcrumbs that leads from the raw data um, to, the, to the inference. But I'd like to see the results of the sequence of models that gets to where I am. And I want to understand what my model's doing. If you ever fit a model, you, have, you say these things like, oh, you see, that parameter is being estimated by this interaction in the data. This part of the data is estimating that part of the data. You like to have this understanding of the mapping from data and assumptions to conclusions. So that understanding is that's kind of a form of metadata, right? The, the inference, your Bayesian inference or non-Bayesian inference or your predictions or whatever, don't within themselves contain that understanding. That's an extra bit that you have to do. So there, there's kind of a lot more there. Um, and the thing you, you quoted my line about theoretical statistics being the theory of applied statistics. And indeed, if we, if we can interrogate what we do, I think we can learn. So if we actually say, if we could model ourselves, when we present a model, we do these things, like we talk about it and we explain it, that should be inside the statistics. It shouldn't be an external thing that we do. And I have some hope because there are things that used to be internal. There are things that used to be external that are now internal. So for example, exploratory data analysis. So graphing your data used to be considered just like a good thing to do, but it wasn't part of the workflow. And now it is, it's kind of formal. We have posterior predictive checks. Or another example would be hierarchical modeling. So in the old days, people might say, I fit my model to this data set and I need to, I want to generalize to another situation. How can I do that? But now we can do a hierarchical model. We can formally do that and put math on it. So the, the um, I think there's a, a maturing of the field where things that started out as conceptual become more methodological and become more mathematical in some way. Um, touching back on to what you said before about how you would like to see, for example, where the data were, uh, for example, parameters are influenced by specific elements of the data. I'm not going to describe this as well as you had previously. Um, but, you know, one of the, in understanding exactly what, where um, aspects of your model are attempting to uh, not manifest, but, you know, better represent specific elements of the data. And one, I guess, sort of, that's always fun to do. It's always fun to, you know, see where, oh yeah, here's my model picking up this specific element um, and things like that. 
But uh, there's it sort of runs into the issue, though, that like humans have an infinite ability to rationalize what they see. And so, you know, we can have this idea that sort of the um, our theory could be a bit overspecified by the data or that there's uh, the data could be overspecified by theories where we can have a vast multitude of theories. So we might see, ah, yes, our model works this way um, because of this element of the data. You take it out it still works that way. And then you still have another great rationalization or another good explanation. Um, and so I guess, is that sort of another reason why the one, if you could just sort of address that issue that our infinite ability to rationalize, but also that's also sort of where some of these like posterior checks and things like that come in um, to help us better understand more rigorously evaluate that. Well, first I'd like to credit um, Tamara Broderick and Ryan Giordano who've done some super interesting work on um, map on, on using uh, gradients um, to understand the sensitivity of inferences to um, to assumptions in Bayesian models. And I had done some stuff with some colleagues in a toxicology example back in the 90s on this, but I hadn't really formalized the idea. We did some graphical graphs that, that um, showed uh, what we called static sensitivity analysis. We never really wrote it up beyond a particular example. And then independently, um, Tamara and Ryan um, did some uh, had some sophisticated ideas with, with Michael Jordan also, um, where you can actually take the derivative of your posterior. I think this would work for non-Bayesian approaches too, but I'll just be Bayesian here. You can, you can take the derivative of your posterior with respect to the data. Uh, so it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like leave one out cross-validation, um, except that you, instead of taking a data point out, you imagine the data point goes into, your, into the likelihood with a power of one, and then you just differentiate with respect to that power. Um, and you can also differentiate with respect to the prior. So you can systematically look at sensitivity in that way. Now that's a paper that's out there and they've used it. I, it hasn't really worked its way into workflow yet, but I think ultimately it will be. So I'm mentioning that partly because I really think like, you know, we're a big community and I want to credit others, but also because this is a theoretical idea. There was some math involved, there's some computing involved, um, all of the all of the like graphical intuition won't get you there. So there's a there's a value um, there's a value to, to math um, when we're trying in in methodology. Um, but your question, I didn't answer your question, and now I forgot what it was. So please remind me because I did have an answer for it. Uh, not a problem. So it's the idea that we can uh, we always have an ability to rationalize. Right, the... right. Okay. I'm not so worried about that. Uh, I mean, sure, yeah, whatever, but I think maybe because I write textbooks and I write software, um, we, we almost never do anything once. So one of, the, one of the problems with statistics papers and examples in statistics textbooks is they're often presented as here's the data, do your analysis. But really things get done over and over and over and over again. So if you do something, sure, if every time you get a data set, you look for something weird and you tell a story, you can mess up. But if you do things more systematically, then you'll find yourself using different tricks on different data sets. And then at that point, you'll try to rationalize this a bit 
in, in one paper, um, some colleagues and I talked about the multiverse analysis, and it was sort of a conceptual tool that if you're analyzing data, there are a lot of choices that can be made in what data to include in your analysis, what interactions to include, how to code things, et cetera. You can imagine the multiverse of all possible analyses. Now, I don't, we sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say we wrote it as a joke, but I would say we weren't really suggesting that people do all the analyses. It's more that you should be aware of them, but like you should, but anyway, I, I can tell you another story because we had some method that we were using for fitting hierarchical models and some colleagues of mine were using it in for uh, poll, analyzing poll data, uh, having a hierarchical model for uh, unexplained state level variation in opinion polls. So I had done this, I wrote some papers on it and it was seemed fine, it worked really well in these examples and they did it, but then they found they were doing it in a series for a series of, of um, polls, a series of surveys. And they found that in, although in any, for any given survey, the result looked reasonable, if you looked at the inferences for the series of surveys, you found that the hyperparameter estimates were very noisy. They're jumping all over the place. And when the hyperparameter, when the hypervariance is too low, you do too much partial pooling. Uh, you pull the state estimates too close to the regression model. If there's if it's if the hypervariance is overestimated, you don't pull enough, and your estimates are too noisy. And if you plot these things over time, you get these weird artifacts, which have to do with the noisy estimates of that. So I thought about it, and we realized we need some regularization. We should be using informative priors and these group level variances, or or you could fit a larger model. But if you're just in general. So I mean, the, the point of the story is that I personally learned from, I had a method which I thought was fine and then other people applied it repeatedly and that's a kind of beta testing and you see problems that way. So I, I think we have to get away from the idea that we're analyzing a single data set. So in that way, I'm a real frequentist that, that I think that even though we develop our methods in the context of individual applications, we really have to evaluate them as if they are going to be applied over and over again. I'm a Bayesian frequentist because I would average over the prior when doing that. But I, I, I do think that almost always we care about the long run frequency properties of our methods. That's really helpful. And um, now, um, before we forget, um, also uh, you've talked quite a bit about exploratory analysis and where exploratory analysis fits in with uh, the scientific method. Do you want to hit on some of those points? Um, well, before doing that, I just, I want to just say how like perspectives, like I want to get back to this idea that different people have different perspectives. So I remember when I was in graduate school, um, uh, my advisor, Don Rubin was working with a colleague of mine and another student and they were analyzing uh, some data from reaction times of schizophrenics and some of it, it made it way, made its way into some methods papers and, and books that I wrote. Um, but they, it was challenging because they, they were fitting a mixture model. So there were, they, they had the logarithms of the reaction times of these people. And for most people, the reaction, the reaction times looked roughly log normal. For the schizophrenics, sometimes they weren't paying attention, or I'm not really describing the experiment well, but for some reason there was sometimes a delay 
And so they were fitting a mixture model of where there was a certain lag. And then they're estimating the lag and that the psychologists involved were, were interested in this. So I was helping them with the computation because they were doing the Gibbs sampler and they couldn't tell whether their series had converged. So we came up with a method of monitoring the convergence of, of the series. But while doing that, I looked at the data and I noticed that the mixture model didn't look like the data. So if you look at the data for the non-schizophrenics, they look pretty log normal. But if you look at the log reaction time for the schizophrenics, they didn't look like mixture of two normals. They looked like a kind of long drawn out right tail. So which map, which you, know, you could model as saying sometimes you're delayed, but the delay itself is a random variable, which of course makes sense. Once you accept there's a stochastic delay, you wouldn't expect it to be a fixed amount of time. So I spoke with Ruben and I said, I think the model doesn't fit the data. Here's another model that makes more sense. And he said he didn't care. And I asked why, and he said, because he is trying to work with the psychologists and their goal is to estimate this delay. So he said, it's just like, if you fit a normal model to data that aren't normal, you can still estimate the average. And he agreed, like, sure, if, I had, if you had an infinite budget, a better model, it gives you more statistical efficiency. He didn't disagree with me, but his goal was not to fit the data. His goal was to kind of solve their problem, like knock this one away and then move on to the next thing. And he felt that there is a whole class of problems of models like this that psychologists fit, where they're interested in this kind of mixture. And if what you're really averaging, if, if what you're really estimating is the average lag, who cares? So that's kind of one story of the difference in perspective. I, I think most statisticians tend to have the perspective that I had, which is our goal is to fit the data. Um, economists and like public health researchers often tend to have a perspective more like Rubens, which is we're, we're trying, we have a kind of applied goal and the model, the data are our means to an end. Rubin, Rubin also wrote a paper called uh, something like when doing causal inference design trumps analysis. So he, he's always been, even though he's famous for data analysis, he's really always been more interested in, in design and data collection. And there's kind of theorems out there that if your design is reasonable, then even if your model is wrong, you're kind of still estimating an average of something you care about. So that's one perspective. The other perspective I want to share is my collaborator, Jennifer Hill, who does a lot of methods and applied causal inference. And I like to say that when I have a causal problem, I have a, a Jennifer emulator that I run. So if I'm trying to solve a causal problem, I say, what would Jennifer do? And I run it through my Jennifer emulator. One thing the Jennifer emulator says to me is that all problems are causal problems. So as a political scientist, I often like to say, I just, I'm often just describing the data. I want to compare how religious people vote to non-religious people. I want to compare rich people to poor people. I'm not doing anything causal. I just want to describe the world. But she always says that you always care about causality. And when people say they're just trying to be descriptive, they're just not being open about what causal question they care about. Now, I don't know if she's always completely right, but, but that's a perspective. So I, I just think like we really have to recognize this pluralism of perspectives. It's so easy to get stuck in this. Of course, you see like um, Bayesians who will say like everything is Bayesian. This is the only optimal way. 
you get people doing machine learning, saying everything's a prediction problem, and then people just like, well, wait, everything's a prediction problem. Well, sort of, but like causal inference, that's a prediction problem of what would happen if you did the treatment. So it's true, but it's not a prediction that you have in your data, right? So like calling things a predictive problem doesn't always help. Saying everything's probability doesn't always help either. Um, we have to be, I think we have to respect the perspectives of others. And the challenge of this, there's like, as a person who's done statistical consulting, it's very difficult because you have to respect other people's perspectives, but often people don't know what they're talking about, which is why they want you to consult for them in the first place. So it's very challenging. Like pluralism and respect for others is not easy, right? Respect is not the same thing as politeness. Respecting others' perspectives doesn't mean I just say everybody's right and I, I agree with everybody. Nobody would be interested in hiring me if that's what, what I did. Of course, I think that I have something to offer. Um, so re respect is a very active, it, it's like you see somebody did something wrong, you figure out why they did it wrong. You extract, and maybe they just said two plus two equals five and they made a mistake, but maybe they had a goal that you weren't aware of. And maybe it wasn't a good goal. Maybe they shouldn't be doing that, but you figure out what that goal is and then you can go back to them. So it's a kind of, it's, you know, another version of deductive reasoning. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting, and uh, just the idea that uh, again you've echoed something that I found that's been pretty helpful is even if you're working with somebody who who isn't particularly data fluent or data savvy, that they tend to have a set of priorities that at least approximates a set of goals or something like that with regard to the applied problem, and even if it doesn't seem to be going in the right path, being cognizant of those goals can be very helpful for doing your own job and uh, getting getting things on the right sort of analytical path. Yeah, well, it's an old like Bayesian idea, like like von Neumann and people talked about this in, in, in the 40s and, and even earlier that given people's actions, if you can deduce their probabilities and their utilities, or you can find out that they're incoherent. Um, and so, is that like implied preference that you're talking about? So the, yeah, um, I mean, this is just straight utility theory, right? So if, if you're the forward version of utility is if you give me a bunch of probabilities and utilities and a probability tree, I can tell you what you should do that maximizes expected utility. And there's also a theorem that, that, that expected utility is if utility satisfies these axioms, you do want to maximize expected utility. Anything else will be dominated. Um, but then you can flip it around and say, if people are behaving coherently, then you can deduce their probabilities and their utilities uh, with suitable set of experiments. But then of course, people aren't coherent. So you point out incoherences. So this is just straight classical decision theory. Uh, but you can apply this idea more generally that if somebody is doing something um, that doesn't seem to make sense, then you try to figure out what what they are trying to do. And like, if you were to talk with Jennifer, then I think she would say that often they have a causal question that for some reason they don't want to be asking or they're not sure how to answer. Did you want to move on to the issue of um, exploratory data analysis? Cause that's something that, um, and where that works. And so basically there's uh, some, un, some topics that we haven't visited yet are the, um, the sort of idea of scientific progress, normal science and scientific revolution. And we also have the um, data exploration, exploratory analysis. Um, do you want to hit one of those topics? 
well, I, I think that just again, in, in terms of giving credit, I think we should give credit to people like uh, Hadley Wickham and, and Diane Cook and, and Bill Cleveland and, and other people who have changed how we think about uh, exploratory data analysis. I mean, obviously credit to, to Tukey for, for getting it out there, but also for the theorists and the computational researchers who have made it, um, who have systematized it. So I, I, I guess I think it often like when a phrase is out there, like part of it is just, yeah, just the phrase exploration, exploratory data analysis is a great phrase. It's kind of funny though, I think that Tukey kind of got it wrong in some way. So Tukey contrasted exploratory data analysis, which is graphics with confirmatory data analysis, which would be null hypothesis significance testing. And of course, well, I say of course, but I don't know if your readers know that in the 1940s and 1950s, Tukey did a lot of work on the multiple comparisons problem and like a bunch of work that is very brilliant and I believe obsolete. I actually think a lot of it wasn't such a good idea even at the time, um, but even, but now it certainly would be considered obsolete, which are various multiple comparisons corrections to get the right family-wise error rate um, under different, different assumptions. And she kind of stopped doing that and I, I like to joke that it's because like he used up his family-wise error rate like around 1960, so he decided to do something different. Um, but, but more seriously, like I think that that was a bit of a dead end. Um, it, was, it was a research area that people worked on. Some more recently, these ideas have been folded back into hierarchical models uh, with methods like false discovery rate uh, my take on something like false discovery rate is it kind of works because it's a hierarchical model. I don't, I don't really like the whole error rate framework because I think that, um, I, I don't, I don't think things are like scientific claims are true or false in that way. I don't think parameters are exactly zero. On the other hand, if you're working in that framework, then ideas like false discovery rate allow you to to move forward and and make progress. So that that stuff has been great. Um, but to get back to exploratory data analysis, the idea is instead of doing confirmatory data analysis, which is hypothesis testing, you do exploratory data analysis. But I have claimed that the two things are the same thing, that EDA is a form of CDA, that when you're doing exploration, as I said earlier, you're looking for anomalies relative to a model. So exploratory data analysis is kind of a form of hypothesis testing, although you're not usually computing a p-value, but you're, you're looking for discrepancies. Um, and it does have similar multiple comparisons issues, as you alluded to earlier. Um, maybe this is, so it's to me interesting that these two ideas which seem so different are so similar um, in that they're, they're based on looking for problems in modeling. But I think Probably the most important stuff, certainly the most important things about exploratory data analysis in the past decades are not any, anything I've done, but the, just the development of tools that allow people to make graphs much more effective, much more effective graphs than the tidyverse and, and all of that. Um, uh, do you, would you like to wrap up now or was just uh, off the top of your head, were there any other ideas that you want to knock out for our parting messages? 
Okay, so my, my parting idea to you, the, the listener of this, is to um, observe what you're actually doing. So when you're fitting multiple models and tracing your parameter estimates and seeing how things change, um, think of this scaffolding as, as being important, it, not necessarily something to be destroyed when, when things are over. So if you're working in GitHub, I guess you won't be losing the scaffolding that your folders, your files aren't going anywhere. Um, but think about these steps. Um, be aware of what you're doing. And you can then, if you are of a more in in the more academic setting you can think about abstracting what you're doing and uh, the abstraction could help others if you're doing something good the abstraction could help you in that if you become aware of your own procedure you can also become aware of whatever incoherence you have and various opportunities for improvement well that is really good and the uh, reflect on being people being aware of their own procedures, I think, is really interesting, um, especially because the idea is even if you are just purely interested in your own benefit and doing and, you know, your own your own progress as a statistician or data scientist, being aware of how you do things in those procedures can at the very least help you execute those quicker and more efficiently and more rigorously. You're always more in the exploration phase of life than you realize and less in the exploitation phase. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good summary. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for your uh, time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was great to talk with you too. Hey guys, this is Glenn. Thanks so much for listening to this most recent episode of the Philosophy of Data Science. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving a like, a comment, and hitting that subscribe and bell button, or a small channel and every bit helps. If you have a lab, a department, some students or some colleagues who you think would enjoy this episode, please consider sending it along. Again, every bit helps, and we really appreciate your word of mouth. Our next episode on the Philosophy of Data Science will be coming out 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday of next week, so we look forward to seeing you then. But if you can't wait to get more data science, machine learning, and statistical content, feel free to look around the rest of the channel. We have a large number of playlists, including things like machine learning for healthcare, uh, ethics and AI, and things like that. So give a look around. There's plenty more content for you to enjoy. You can also check out our website to not only see past episodes, but what's coming up and see who our sponsors are. Thank you to our sponsors for your support. Now, while the views discussed on the show typically range between extraordinary and mind-blowing, the stated views don't necessarily represent those of the host, our sponsors, my employer, your employer, the speaker's employer, or anyone else not saying those words. And as always, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. See you next week.